It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Let's change it up. Let's talk a real sport. Let's talk the sport of cycling. Let's talk the Tour de France. The godfather of New Zealand cycling, Ron Cheatley, joins us on the programme. Ron, good afternoon. Welcome. Hi, Mark. How are you? Very good, thank you. Now, I understand this morning when I spoke to you, you were watching a replay of Stage 1 of this year's Tour de France and an unconventional first stage because it was a very hilly stage where historically the opening stage generally tends to be a flat fast finishing sprinters stage for sure like really different this year mark like what a hell of a stage it was um yeah it was pretty lumpy um and as you quite rightly say normally the first two or three stages are quite flat the sprinters are nice and fresh and they show their stuff but today it was really the gc riders uh those that are going for the overall general classification they're the ones that sort of on really early and in fact there was only like 14 in the front group and you could say that all of those guys that were there including last year's winner Jonas uh, Vingegaard and Taja Pogaccia uh, and Victor Lafay, three of his favourites were certainly up in that group and the, and the really really good thing for the Kiwis is that Corbin Strong led the next group in only 33 seconds behind in 15th place. Fantastic ride. Yeah, unbelievable. And I want to touch on the two New Zealand riders shortly. Uh, look, um, we, we've seen very much a dominating opening day by the UAE team, uh, which is the team that George Bennett rides for. He's not riding in the tour this year. Um, won by, uh, well, the Yates brothers first and second, and then Pagacha um, finishing in third place. Will they want to hold on to that yellow jersey this week? I would think they'd probably want to get rid of it or they won't necessarily spend too much energy trying to defend it this week. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you're right. They, they wouldn't want to spend too much energy defending it on the first day or the second day, if you like. Having said that, it's such major profile for a team that has that jersey for the sponsors. And it's very valuable, you know, it's very valuable as far as ongoing sponsorship goes, etc. to hang on to the jersey. If you can, without sort of expending sort of too much unnecessary energy. Yeah, can you just explain to our listeners why that is the case? Why teams, some teams, once they do pick up the yellow jersey early in the tour, don't necessarily want to be defending it or doing too much work to defend it in the first week? What are some of the ramifications of doing that? Well, yeah, basically because they really need to save their workers to later on in the race, like it's a three-week race. So you need to save your good workers and keep their legs as fresh as possible when you might be having to really, really defend in the high mountain stages. So you don't really want them having to defend early in the tour, which means on these earlier stages, riding on the front, chasing down every little breakaway, breakaway group that gets away. You know, you can't keep chasing all day um, for breakaway groups um, to hang on to that jersey when um, you need to, you know, keep them in good shape for later on the tour. So it's a little bit of, it's, 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 the, it's like chess, you know, it, it, when do you play the right move? And, uh, but as I just said before, 
it's worth a lot of money uh, and worth a lot of sponsorship credence and what have you to hang on to the jersey if, as long as you can. Yeah, now in terms of, you've talked about it, there'll be some teams here that will have what they call a GC rider or trying to win the yellow jersey or trying to get high up on the podium. There'll be other teams here that'll be looking to try and win stages. Just talk us through how some of these teams uh, determine their riders and if they're trying to win GC, how that team might look versus if they're teams that are trying to maybe win some of the sprint stages and, and the type of cattle they might bring into their team. Yeah, for sure. Like uh, the favourite to win the race, of course, is last year's winner, Jonas Vingegaard, who's in phenomenal form. We've seen in some of the earlier races. So he's come to the tour with a team based on general classification. So riders that can climb, like it, you can't win the tour to France unless you can climb. So he's got uh, riders around him that will protect him on the big mountain stages and strong guys that can actually chase down some of the uh, high contenders later on in the race. Whereas you'll get a team, say, like Stana, for instance, which Mark Cavendish is in. You know, Mark Cavendish has won 34 stages in the Tour de France and equal with the great Eddie Merckx. So he's in his last tour and wants to be, you know, have that record on his own. So he's going for the 31st stage win. So his team is built around sprinters. And so they won't bother about that general classification so much. Um, so they'll concentrate on the sprints. And there are other teams that will concentrate on what's called the points jersey, the green jersey, where they'll go for intermediate sprints along the way and try and pick up some other points at the stage finishes to try and win the green jersey, which is sort of like the number two jersey behind the yellow jersey. And then you've got the polka dot, which is the king of the mountains. There'll be teams that will concentrate on that classification as well. So, yeah, you pick, you pick your team to suit what you think you've got a really good chance of winning. Mm. With the radios these days, and they don't have them at the Olympic Games, and there's always discussion whether the radios um, are a good thing or a bad thing, and everyone's got a, a different point of view on it, but it does make it a lot harder these days for solo riders to go up the road and stay away and try and create that great moment for themselves and the team. Just, just explain why radios, what radios allow teams to do. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I don't really think um, you could ride the Tour de France safely these days. If you look at the safety aspect, um, you know, what the radios are good for, the team manager <coughs> sitting in the team support car, is telling their riders what's coming up ahead. This is a dangerous descent coming up, guys. Be really, really careful. Or it's just rained, you know, 20 minutes before. It's going to be slippery. So that's the safety aspect of the radio, which is probably the most important thing. The other thing is tactics. Yeah, like a breakaway gets up the road and you don't know who's in it. Like there could be a dozen riders, um, whereas the team manager will quickly hear on what's called uh, race radio, um, who's in that breakaway group. And then they'll look at where those riders are on general classification, if there's anybody there that's a danger. Uh, like could be within you know a minute or so of, of one of your riders, or if they're a group of riders that are way down on classification, like 30 minutes down, 40 minutes down. So you decide then whether you should get to the front of the main peloton and chase like hell to bring that group back because it's dangerous, or let them go and basically have an easier day ready to do something different tomorrow. Mm. 
Now, okay, let's just go back to my point I made about the first week. Just, just say that you do have the yellow jersey and you're keen to defend it for the reasons you've alluded to. What does that, what does that mean for you during a stage and how much pressure is put on you? And, and what are some of the things that you, you have to do to retain that jersey? Well, you've got to show the rest of the panel that you are um, serious about um, defending it and actually obligated, I guess, showing obligation to the jersey. So it's no good having the yellow jersey and all your riders are sitting near the back having an easy day if there's a breakaway that's gone up the road. Because what will happen is the other team will say, well, you know, you guys, you've got the jersey, you're sitting on the back, you're not prepared to chase, so we're not going to chase either. So, you know, you do show an obligation and you'll notice that if, if there is a dangerous breakaway group that gets away, you'll, you'll soon see the team that has the yellow jersey will be on the front of that peloton and they'll start working hard and probably put three or four riders on the front. And then they won't be the only team that does that because once the riders in the main peloton see that they're serious about defending the jersey, you'll find that maybe the second, the guy who's second on general classification, his team will go to the front and try and help out with the work and so on. So, yeah, it's a bit of an unwritten rule in some ways that mm. um, if you've got the jersey, they're expected to defend it. Yeah, yeah, and one way to stop people from going up the road is clearly set a pretty strong tempo on the front of the peloton, which makes it almost impossible for a single rider or a couple of riders to be able to get out and, and maintain a pace. Uh, what, what sort of speed does it start to become um, almost impossible for one or two riders to go up the road? Yeah, I guess, you know, like basically they sit in between that um, you know, 45 to 50, 52k an hour is sort of like a normal um, speed of a fast-moving peloton along the road. So if you're in a breakaway uh, trying to get away, you've, you've got to be sitting up in that in the 50k-plus uh, speed zone mark, to be fair. Uh, unless, of course, it's hilly terrain or it's a really strong headwind or, or whatever. But once again, the team manager or the, you know, the director sportif, as we, as we know it in uh, cycling terms, he, he, he will determine... Um, whether you should chase after that breakaway group. They are currently doing, say, 54k an hour average. Um, you guys will need to do 56k an hour to actually bring them back within so many kilometres. They'll have it all worked out. And that's why quite often you see a breakaway group that may get out to a big lead of, say, 12 minutes or what have you, and then it'll gradually whittle down, and then they get caught with, like, you know, 3k to go or something. And that's all worked out, really, by the, the team directors knowing how, how fast you have to go to actually bring that group back just before the finish. And they, t they normally time it to perfection. And it's always great to see a breakaway hold on because they dig a bit deeper and, uh, and, they, um, and they come through. And, you know, cycling uh, supporters always love to see that long-term breakaway. Win the stage. Yeah, you know. Look, I often. How many is the right number in a breakaway? I mean, sometimes when you get sort of too many, they can start looking at each other, and you know, often teams will have maybe a policeman in that group, and 
won't necessarily do no work. I mean, is three, four, five, six, what's the ideal number in a breakaway to try and stay away? I think it depends on the conditions, Mark. Like if it's a really strong headwind, you want as many as you can in there, you know. If, if, if it's like a strong tailwind or something, like two or three guys can, can stay away. So, um, yeah, I think it, it does depend a lot on the conditions. But one thing is, and what I should say, is that if a brute gets quite big on a breakaway, they'll look at the riders and they'll get information again from their team car that guys... You, you know, you probably, you're going to get caught because you've got number 54 in there and he's only laying 1 minute 20 down on overall lead. So that breakaway is not going to succeed. Mm. So sit up and um, wait till it gets caught because you want a breakaway to go away that's got riders that are well down on general classification so that the main contenders are not going to chase you. Yeah, yeah. so if you if you get into that second or third week and you get a sort of a moderate stage where um, the big boys are probably using it more as a rest day, you find yourself an hour down on GC, probably a good idea to maybe have a chat to a number, a couple of riders that are an hour back and go, hey, maybe boys, we should have a bit of a crack today. They might just let us go. Absolutely. That, that's exactly what happens, Mark, is a there's a lot of moves decided over the cup of coffee mm. at breakfast time, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's have a look at uh, Tadej Pogacar. Now, he ended up getting a narrow victory. Uh, when I say narrow victory, he ended up finishing third, but he got his nose in front of Jonas uh, Vingard. Uh, is that a psychological edge right there, or is that just, I mean, it's not going to determine the tour, but can we read too much into that? don't think you can read anything into it, Mark. Like, Vingard looked like he was backpedalling all day. He was just absolutely cruising. He, he didn't have to contend the sprint for third place at all. Um, having said that, Pogaccia looked just as good. So uh, I think it's going to be a, another battle between those two guys. But no, you don't, you don't sprint unless you really have to. Like, you know, don't take risks if you don't have to. Don't waste energy if you don't have to. He was on the same time as Pogaccia. Okay, Pogaccia got a couple of seconds bonus for finishing third. Um, but no, there was no need for him to do a big gallop at the end. Now, Adam Yates, who rides for UAE Team Emirates, the same team as Tadej Pogacar, uh, that would pretty much be his day in the sun because he's now very much the lieutenant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but, they, you know, it, it's good. that They've got two real GC contenders, so Pogacar can get sick or he can have a fall or anything can happen. Uh, and, and I've got Yates right there. So, you know, if you look at y- Yombo, uh, Fisma team, yep. uh, Vingegaard, like, he, he's got other GC... Yeah, Vol- Vol- Volt Van Aert. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, you know, he's got Seb Coos and he's got Benoit, uh, and, you know, it's just stacked with GC riders. So um, UAE in a good position uh, at the moment, for sure. Yeah, let's um, just talk about Corbin Strong. Uh, as you said, it, it, remarkable, led in that chase group uh, just 17 or seconds back, I think, uh, finished 16th on GC. Tell us a little bit about him and his meteoric rise because it is really just a wonderful story on debut his first Tour de France, riding for Ismail Premier Tech. Yeah, um, they were actually 33, 33, 33 seconds. my apologies, yeah, poli- yeah, 33 seconds yeah, no, back, no, sorry. No, yeah. no, yeah, they were close. They were, they were really, really close. And, and there were some GC contenders in, in his group, for sure. And um, I didn't see the finish uh, when, they, when they finished. But, um, like, 
Corman comes from a very, very successful uh, track program, of course. Um, you know, Commonwealth champion, world champion, and, and points races. And he, he got picked up by uh, Israel Premier Tech because of his explosive speed, I guess you could say, and his good uh, race sense. He, he places himself well in the field. Um, and I would be surprised. I would not be a bit surprised if, if uh, he pulls off, um, if not a stage win, uh, top three at some stage. And, uh, you know, he's there for that. That's what he's there for. He's there to finish off. Um, and he's there to use that, uh, that top-end speed speed that he's got. Like, um, his, uh, his GC uh, uh, rider in there is, um, is, is Michael Woods. The Canadian, yep, and he was in the, he was in the front group today. So, uh, Corman Stroll uh, will, but he won't be the, he won't be the number one lieutenant to him, but he will certainly be a great support rider along the way. That's for sure. Yeah, Woods came from a running background, didn't he? And then picked up cycling. Remarkable story in itself. Now, just going back through to some of the riders in that group there, Louis, Louis Leon Sanchez, Matthew Van der Poel. I mean, you go through it, boy. You, you, Tom Piddock. A Pidcock mountain bike um, yep. Olympic champion who switched to the road. It's um, <laughs> it's not a bad little uh, it's not a bad little group that he was in amongst. A remarkable story, but it no, is it, no. it, it, it's just great though, isn't it? What it does say is that you can come from these small towns, you can come from little old New Zealand, and you can arguably ride the biggest sporting event on an annual basis. Just you know that it's not beyond you. And uh, you know maybe disappointing that we've only just got the two riders this year on the start line, but it, it it just shows it can be done, and it can be done by just training and going through the school system here and, you know, paying your dues. Exactly. That's exactly right. We mustn't forget the other rider. Yeah, Dion Smith. Yep. And um, he rides for Intermarché uh, Circus Wanty, and he he finished like the place in his 94, but don't forget there's nearly 200 riders in this race, and um, his, his placing as such doesn't mean anything. It's not as if he was trying to finish, you know, 93rd or something, but, but it, all it says is that he was in a big group that finished 11 minutes down, and when you think that uh, Mark Cavendish was in a group that finished 21 minutes down, um, you can see that uh, Dion Smith's ride uh, was midfield, and um, and Dion, Dion struggled for quite a while to get himself a pro contract, and I, I tried to help him, help him along the way with that, and uh, it's good now to see that he's riding the number one bike race in the world. And has finally made it. And uh, he's got a job to do too. Like, Dion's smart. He's a smart rider. And he um, he will be certainly there helping out uh, Michael Woods along the way, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Who's going to win it? You, you, you don't have to be right. But just, just... Well, if you look at the TAB, I look at the TAB odds, Mark, I'm like, geez, I've got to have a bet on something. But you can't. You can't put money on Pogaccio or Vingegaard because they're both hot favourites and you're lucky to double your money. But, um, you know, I, I went for a rough outside. Well, it can't be too rough because he's got a good reputation. But Mikel Lander, um, yeah. I think he was paid about 65 to 1 or something. Um, but, uh, yeah, like it's hard to go past those top two, mm. to be fair. Mm. You mentioned Corbin Strong there potentially winning a stage in the Tour de France. Do you think people here in New Zealand would understand the magnitude of it? Do people realise just how big a deal that is, that it is considered a professional race win? Yeah, it's hard to say. Like, um, 
obviously cycling is showing a lot more now uh, on TV and that here than what used to be in the old days. Um, I think if you watch a couple of stages of the Tour de France, you'll certainly gain pretty quick um, understanding and appreciation of how big a deal it is to just get to the start line in mm. this bike race. Uh, like the crowds are bigger and bigger every year, Mark. They really are. Like that first stage today was just horrific yeah. as far as the crowds go. So the following is enormous. And, you know, like, sure, we only got two in it. Um, well, I thought we would have had four, but obviously a couple of our guys are probably going to be lining up in the Vuelta, the Tour of Spain. What was the deal with George? Was that due to the crash in Switzerland, or was he just not not always going to – he was just never going to make that team? I'm, I was trying to sort of find out a little bit more yeah. information, but I, I couldn't get clarity either way. No, no, I don't know. I haven't dug in to ask him the question, but it, normally – the, the tour directors will have decided which race suits the best uh, for your form at this type or which terrain is going to suit you the best. And, uh, yeah, I, I think with that fall weight George had, has probably knocked him back a bit, but um, I, I would be surprised if he didn't get a start in the Volta. Mm. Yeah, and if, if we should just say that three grand tours a year, Giro d'Italia, or Tour of Italy, the Tour of France, and then of course the Tour of Spain or the Vuelta of España. Uh, look, um, lovely to catch up, uh, Ron. Greatly appreciate it. Some wonderful insight. I mean, it's sometimes easy, isn't it? If you live in this world, you assume everybody knows sort of how things operate. But there's a lot of people out there that, yeah, I'm sure you've taken out quite a bit of guesswork for them, and it certainly allows it, to, you know, certainly understand the intrigue that goes with an event like this. It's it's not necessarily the best rider that always wins. Sometimes it's the smartest. There is a little bit of luck, but it often just comes down to a really good team as well. Yeah, for sure, Mark. Yeah, pleasure.